Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 56. What are you up to today, Kyle? I am. I watched a little bit of the British Open this morning, and that is all I have done. So it's been a nice morning. <laughs> uh, have you been paying attention, British Open? I have. I, uh, I skipped out on some to go meet someone to try and sell them something off Craigslist. And then they, when I met them, they decided they didn't want it. So that was uh, took me away from watching sports this morning, unfortunately. Oh, man. You should have just left it on their lawn, whatever it was. You know, you ain't going to meet somebody at somebody's house. This ain't, this ain't uh, rookie <laughs> Craigslist here, man. You meet somewhere. <laughs> I'm... Uh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I, a couple of things about the British Open stick out to me. One is, uh, seems Jordan Spieth has found his groove again. Um, I thought kind of at the beginning, uh, or all last season really, uh, seemed like an extensive hangover of the year before when he was so dominant. Um, but he seems to kind of have that strut again. There seems to be a little arrogance to how he's playing, which is when I think he's playing his best. Um, I also love seeing Matt Kuchar playing well. Uh, I would love I think to see I love him. Kuchar. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would love to see him win. Um, Brendan Grace shot a 62 today, uh, which is the lowest round ever in a major. Which you Think about all the rounds that have ever been played in majors. That's pretty incredible. And I just want to point out that I don't care at all <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't seem like uh, much of a story to talk about other than just to say like, oh, that happened. Uh, maybe it's because it's a second tier player like Brendan Grace that did it. Uh, but at any rate, the other main storyline that came out for me is uh, from this morning. So, it was, you know, Saturday is um, called Moving Day. Uh, that doesn't hold true all the time, but it, it, it's it, it's a thing. And I'm always impressed in the majors when the top players make use of moving day. And so looking at the leaderboard yesterday, a lot of big names were missing, but by the end of today, a lot of big names were there. So um, Hideki Matsuyama is four under. Rory, I think, is three right now. Dustin Johnson's two or three. Uh, Brooks Kepka is right there, like, I don't know. These these great players are great for a reason, um, and every time I'm amazed when they make moves in majors on Saturday. I'm like, gosh, that's that's why they're great. And it's not that they shot eight under; it's that they've been one under every day. Mm -hmm. you know? And so those guys on the first day that shot six under that you never heard of are gone already. Yep. Uh, but Hideki Matsuyama, Rory, Dustin Johnson, they all just kind of plug along one, two, under each day, and here they are, two, two, three, four shots off the league going into Sunday. Just impressive. I want to talk about Spieth for a moment and just say um, how damn impressive the guy is. Uh, first off, I just think he's really good for golf, and I don't know what makes me feel that way, but I think that he's captivating watching in a way that Brooks Kapka is never going to be a captivating watch. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't, part of this is I'm looking right now at his record. And so like last year you mentioned he kind of had a hangover, which I, I think I agree with. Yeah, he still won two tournaments last year. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he's already won two tournaments this year. And yeah, maybe he didn't win five like he did in 2015. Right. Um, 
really interesting to look at this because he's won he's won ten PGA Tour tournaments at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- let's see here, four of them have been in a playoff, and he's been in two. So he's been in six playoffs now in what the four years he's been on the tour, which is just kind of incredible in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but the, it's either four playoffs and one one-stroke victory, which was the U.S. Open when Dustin Johnson just absolutely blew it at the end. So, I mean, that's like five really exciting victories, including, you know, the Travelers where he chipped in in the playoff to win. Right. And then all of the other victories are by at least three strokes, which I think – He's either impressive when he's dominating or he's impressive because it's it's like a hold on, what's going to happen next type thing. Right, right. Um, and I just, I don't know what, he's just kind of a magnetic personality in some ways, I think, in a yeah. way that's not as off-putting as a lot of people that are that way are. Right. Yeah, he seems to strike a really good balance between the marketing of self, which is necessary to some extent mm-hmm. when, when you're in the spotlight like that like you just don't have a choice you 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 have to market yourself in some way or some fashion so you create a brand for yourself uh when you're when you're that good and winning that often and he seems to be doing it pretty nicely um i think like rory his first few years of being really famous i i feel like he really struggled with it Mm -hmm. uh, and got a lot better at it i think dustin johnson is pretty awful at it um brooks kepka is like a non-entity is <laughs> as far as that's concerned i think ricky fowler struggled with it at the start um but yeah, yeah i think jordan Spee's done pretty well with that balance of being an icon or a, a celebrity and a golfer at the same time and it's in that mix and they like ricky was really good at the marketing of himself uh, mm-hmm. but he couldn't quite get the play to back it up. And now he's figuring that out to some degree. Yeah. Um, and and then you've got Johnson, who's been really good at playing, but still doesn't know, like off the course is still not a person I ever want to be around in any form or fashion. Right. Um, so it's just, he does, um, you know, it's kind of like when George, uh, George W, everybody would be like, I, I'd like to have a beer with George W. Like he, made some terrible decisions, but clearly uh, he didn't, he was still a person that you were interested in being around. Right. Uh, I think Spieth is the same way in some ways. Mm-hmm. Good George W comparison. <laughs> <laughs> 56 episodes in first uh, George W. <laughs> I think it is the first time we've ever dropped W on here. Well, now we got to find some way to drop HW in here. We can just keep working our way back through the GOP <laughs> presidents. Maybe uh, how we did our Harry Potter episode, we can do an ex-presidents episode. <laughs> well, I am. Uh, I just also want to say that the British Open is by far my favorite of, not by far. Like I love the Masters, but the British Open and the Masters are head and shoulders above the U.S. Open and PGA, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no more enjoyable tournament to watch, in my opinion, than the British Open because the courses are all so much more beautiful than our courses. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, – it oozes history in a way that the Masters is trying to do, but the Masters is always going to feel a little artificial because of what it is. Yeah. 
Well, and they just weren't first. <laughs> there's there's something about the narrative of a first that uh, you can never usurp that. It's just not possible. Um, do you think it's something about it being a little bit exotic? Um, or do you think it's more, I, I, I'm the same way. I, I think I'm, I'm a sucker for Wimbledon and the British Open. And I wonder how much of it is the extreme Britishness of it. And what I mean by that is their allegiance to being understated. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. And I wonder if they, we're both just suckers for that. Because <laughs> we're land blast. We're in a world of like the NFL using like American flags during the national anthem that are in the shape of the United States of America and the size of a football field. <laughs> So when we hear announcers that are like overly polite and so quiet, you have to have the volume all the way up that you and I are both like, ah, finally. Well, I, I think that's a big part of it. I would push say that personally, I think one of the reasons I love it is because the British Open combines kind of everything I want in a golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, really punishing rough, but usually the courses aren't that long, so they're there to be had if conditions are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's nothing I like more than a windy day on the golf course. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I love it when it's 25 miles an hour and these guys are struggling with that. That's, uh, it's just, it's a fun though. So in that way, I think that those, uh, British courses always line up with kind of those sort of credentials. Yeah. And that contrasts with the masters so much, which is all about like controlling nature. Mm-hmm. Whereas the British Open is like, yep, we live on this island in the middle of the ocean. Good luck. You're absolutely right. That's a great point. That it's really like, you know, you nature is the third factor here. Um, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, then what about Federer? What do we even say about Federer? I mean, he's just, he's a prodigal. Uh, what, yeah, what can you say? It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I think we, maybe looking back, maybe we should have predicted this. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's no doubt that anybody that plays tennis at the high level, it's a very physical game. Um, but Federer's game was never as much predicated on his physicality mm-hmm. as Nadal and Djokovic's games were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in some ways, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that he was there before them. They usurped the throne, but now their bodies have fallen apart and he's back on top. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose it's it's a testament to his desire and capacity, but also um, it's just it's he has an effortlessness that you can't match. Yep. Uh, when did he win, win his first Wimbledon? Two thousand three. That would be about yep. right. Yeah, 2003. I was going to say, because I remember being in high school. I think I was a senior in high school. Um, the first time I really watched him play, and I was watching with a friend's dad who was a tennis coach. Um, and he said something to the extent of, like, you're going to watch this guy play for the next 20 years. Hmm. Uh, and he was commenting on how Federer played the game physically. And then in the same sentence um or in the same vein i think it was like a year or two later i was watching another match and we were watching nadal play and he was like you're gonna watch this guy play for like five years Uh, (laughs) 
he's like, there's no way someone can play at the highest level and play mm-hmm. that way for a long time. Um, and I've thought about that their both of their whole careers about him saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think we could have predicted it, but I, and then in the same conversation is like Federer just took six months off yeah. and for the last seven, seven or eight years now, all the top players on the ATP have like every now and then quipped something about how absurd the schedule is. Uh, and so here we were at Federer at Wimbledon this year, Federer just took six months off. Uh, Nadal just went through a grueling French open Andy Murray off of two years of being number one, grueling Djokovic playing more matches than anyone, I think, in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of them being there at the end because of physicality. And Federer was like, didn't even sweat. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just like if we're sports fans and we want to watch the best, um, maybe we can't watch them all the time. That These schedules are pretty absurd. Well, I think it speaks to the fact, I mean, so I'm looking here, you know, he's been playing Wimbledon since 1999. Yeah. That's 18 times uh, by my maths, um, which is ridiculous that you can maintain your desire and will to win for that long, Mm -hmm. that your life hasn't changed so much that it doesn't mean as much to you anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that for me speaks to just volumes as to, uh, how amazing the whole thing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, gosh, 14 years ago, winning his first Wimbledon. That's, that's incredible. It's, it's, yeah, it's almost hard to talk about him now. Like, what else do you say other than just to watch it happen and say like, yeah. well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing left to say. Hmm. It is interesting because I think the point you bring up is true in every major sport. I mean, we just saw the Cavs essentially not play for a regular season and then turn it on in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen, and, you know, football you have to play because there's only 16 games. Um, and soccer the same way because they categorize it differently. But it is true that I feel like uh, a number of these sports we're seeing players that like either – actively or just take some time off to think on things um, Mm -hmm. and not go very hard, which I think the reason the NBA is never going to have fewer games is because uh, they're not, they're making money hand over fist for these games. Right. But what does it mean long-term for these players? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I did want to briefly comment. Did you watch the final? The no, I did not. No. Did you hear, hear or see about Marin Chilich kind of breaking down? I did, yeah. I, I don't know if I have much to say about it other than I, I, I. It, it was it was it was weird. It was really hard to watch. It was. Mm. I don't think anyone knew what was going on, which is the first part of it. Like, you know, who knows what, um, what it was. But at any rate, it it just appeared to me to be a like kind of a nervous breakdown, hmm. kind of a panic attack. Uh, and I think the injury that he had a foot thing going on, that maybe that was like adding to it of like the moment he realized like this isn't going to happen. And so like he experienced the loss in the middle of the match. Hmm. Um, 
but I, I can't help but think that it was just like the overwhelming pressure and then to get to a final and be completely dismantled. Like it just pointed to me of like how, in, how intense <laughs> sports can get uh, that it gets like really deep into the human experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I felt for the guy so much and, uh, he's definitely not listening to our podcast, but I wanted him to know that like <laughs> I didn't care and I didn't think any less of him for it. Uh, no, it was, never. It was just so understandable. Yeah. Mm. But, but what else you got? Well, let's see. So, I mean, the big uh, NBA news is that we got thrown into – just a total crap storm yesterday with Kyrie wanting out of Cleveland, man. I know. What are, you, what are your What's responses? Um, you know, on some level, it's probably good for the NBA. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. Keeps the NBA in the news. Uh, and it's interesting because, I mean, uh, there was talk about the how the Warriors were not good for the NBA because they were so good and they had no drama. Well, now we've got about the most drama you can have on their opposing team. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, I think uh, there's two different ways to kind of frame this. And I don't know which one is more accurate, but there's the whole um, Kyrie. What is Kyrie doing? He's playing for the best, and now he's going to give it up. Uh, but then there's the flip side, which is LeBron is just – appears to be a little hard to deal with and maybe what's what's his role in this situation um so i don't know it's just it's it's a really fascinating story on some level yeah i can't imagine playing with lebron that closely and working with him uh i mean he's a colleague in the first place right like yeah Working with someone with that much intensity, that much notoriety, that much attention, that much money, that much spotlight, it's like just much, much, much. Um, and surely Kyrie has benefited from it, and surely he's one of the top players in the NBA. Uh, but either way, being around that every day, I think would just that would be really hard. <laughs> um, you know, on the other side of it. Um, I'm like, well, what, what's it going to do? I, you know, it, it, it's almost like he's accepting that um, maybe a championship next year is not the most important thing to him, uh, which I think is an interesting way of framing it to say that mm-hmm. if championships are the goal of every NBA player, then he should stay there and just say, I'm going to keep trying to win championships. But, this is him kind of saying, like, no, there's life outside of championships, at least next year. And, you know, I don't – I obviously don't know Kyrie, uh, but my feeling with him has always been that he's a fairly intelligent fellow, um, that he hasn't struck me as, you know, a Ron Artest figure, for lack of a better reference, or, or even a Russell Westbrook guy. Uh, but it is interesting to me to see kind of how people react. So, I mean, uh, Blake re-upped with the Clippers, uh, even though in the knowledge that they're probably not going to be as good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because he wanted a shot at having that be his team. 
Yeah. Uh, we saw Westbrook do the same thing last year. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe there's something to be said for when you're young, you want it to be your team. And then when you're Paul George and it's been your team uh, and you didn't win, now you want to win and you move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kyrie, I mean, Ky- this was going to be Kyrie's team. And then right. it was taken away from him. So, Do you think he uh, has the this is my team gumption? Because I don't think I do. I, I don't think he has it, but I think um, – so, and this is me projecting a ton. Kind of what yeah. I'm getting out of this is that I think if I were in Kyrie's situation, I probably didn't have any fun last year. Yeah. Uh, and this offseason has been terrible because mm-hmm. of everything that's gone on. And it's just probably driving me nuts. And I just want to go somewhere, A, where I can probably get a little more recognition for being as good as I am. Yeah. But B, just to be relaxed a little bit yeah. and have a little yeah. bit of fun. That's kind of what I see. That's what I imagine is going on here, even though I really have no idea what these relationships look like. See, that's exactly where I am too. And I'm seeing it almost as a, like a protest vote. I'm saying like, no, I'm, I'm Blake too. I think would fall into it. Like if, if your only option as a great player is to be part of now a big four, like maybe this is saying like, come on, is it? That's not fun. Uh, it's not the most fun way we could be organizing our league. Well, you see, I I don't know that I would frame it in quite those terms because I think that when Durant went to Golden State last year, he was making the move, like making the same kind of countercultural move, um, mm-hmm. because he was saying, you know. Uh, it goes against everything the NBA stands for, for me to go to the team that beat me uh, and the team that was better than me and make them better instead of fighting on my own. But you know what? It's going to be much more enjoyable in my life to go be a part of that other team right now. And so I'm going to choose, choose that enjoyment over winning a championship here with this team right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we may couch it as he was chasing championships, but I really, by all accounts, uh, I think he's having a lot better time with the Warriors even than he would have had with the Thunder if they had won this year. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I, I guess so on some level, I never want to begrudge someone for doing something that is makes them feel better and happier as a person. So that's why right. I think this comes down to at the end. Because I don't think Kyrie is happy, and I think he should have every right to go wherever he wants to go Mm -hmm. uh, to be happy, regardless of how the NBA's championship focus looks on that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's also worth mentioning the obvious of, like, it probably is fun and workplace environment, but it's also business. Yep. <laughs> These guys are making hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I think about it, and John Wall saying he wants to stay at the Wizards. Like, well, yeah, you just got a $170 million contract <laughs> extension. Like, well, of course you want to stay at the Wizards. Like, how noble is that? Uh, I, will, I will say, on the flip side, it's really interesting to see uh, Chris Paul like do this whole negotiation to get these huge max deals. Yeah. 
and then not take advantage of it when he has an opportunity to. Right. Hmm. The life of multimillionaires. It's a tough one. Uh, you know who could definitely not play with LeBron? Who's that? Uh, President Trump. They would not get along very well on no. a team. They, uh, you know, maybe their skill sets match. Since apparently Trump can drain a bunch of free throws with his overcoat on. Um, yeah. So what happened here? I didn't see this. So, uh, you know, Sean Spicer got fired, um, mm -hmm. and there. I think the question was along the lines of, "Is Trump feeling under pressure, or is he being heated up?" And the guy, the new press guy, responded by saying. Trump is the most competitive person he knows and that he has seen him throw a perfect spiral through a tire and hit free throws with an overcoat on, swishing them uh, on a basket on in Madison Square Garden. Uh, and that was proof of how competitive and how good he is at handling stress. It was a, It's amazing. It's just so comforting. I feel better now about the state of our country. Well, and let's be clear. There can be no doubt. I think you've, we've talked about this, that he's a pretty decent golfer. Um, but I don't think the guy's a stellar athlete here. Let's be clear. <laughs> uh, I don't even have a comment. I don't this, is, this is not Putin going out to play uh, fixed soccer matches. I don't even think Trump could do that. Huh. It's yeah, I don't even have a comment. I don't have anything. <laughs> I just I I saw the story and it was too good for me to say no to. So I had to make <laughs> uh makes me think of the North Korean leader shooting an eighteen on around the golf. <laughs> or Putin finding like relics and vases uh that are thousands of years old when he yes. goes scuba diving. Well, I don't know that we've even talked about uh, when they first went to Mar-a-Lago with Trump and they put the press in a basement room and put tarps over the windows so they couldn't see him actually playing. Right. And how amazing that is. I also read this week that uh, apparently Trump and uh, Mueller, the um, FBI guy, had a tryst back in the day when Mueller wanted to quit his membership at Trump national uh, and didn't want to like pay his fees or something like what the hell? How is that a thing? Like uh, my brother-in-law said last week when we were watching uh, the women's U S open and Trump was standing on the, in a tent on the 16th tee um, watching these women play on his golf course. And he was like, Oh my God, we live in a banana Republic. <laughs> Like <laughs> our our leader is watching the U.S. Open on his golf course. Like, what the hell is happening? Not only that, but like uh, the day after or the Women's U.S. Open ended, the LPGA Tour put out a list of uh, new dress code for all the women to uh, partake in. Uh, that was rather ugly and backwards in many ways. <laughs> oh my do we have a good news story to counter this i got another bad one if you want to hear another bad one 
I know I only got like three or four more bad ones, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I uh, somewhere along the road, I, I stumbled into an article on Louisville's Yum Arena there. So how familiar are you with all the crap associated with that? Uh, to some extent. So, you know, they like all these other stadiums. It's interesting because then it's UofL plays there, but it's not a UofL stadium, which is an interesting arrangement. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a, a not a good one in that most of the time universities can finance these in ways that make it very easy to deal with. Uh, right. But the fact that it's kind of a public-private partnership thing makes it really difficult. Yep. Anyway, they UofL was just kind of forced to agree to upped rents um, on the space, never mm-hmm. mind the fact that that essentially is going to do, do nothing to keep them from going into bankruptcy. Uh, mm-hmm. That they're now six hundred ninety million in debt. Yeah. Uh, and the seventy-five percent of the income for this arena comes from public tax revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, when they originally signed the agreement for this in two thousand seven, uh, the state was the city was going to pay six point five million every year. Which was going to cost two uh, two hundred six million over thirty years. Mm-hmm. Well, they're now renegotiating a deal that will take it up to three hundred nine million over the course of that thirty years. Um, all of this in a st- city that has a five hundred sixty five million dollar budget, um, a discretionary budget, not including capital and debt payments. Um, mm-hmm. But I did a little digging in here into your budget. Um, uh, and looked up how much money the c- city gives to outside support agencies for social services every year. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what you think of your mayor, but based on these numbers, he's kind of an asshat. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that in uh, according to one, they've split it up differently in different years, but according to one number, it was 4.8 million went to outside support agencies in 2014, 2015. So essentially this is all of your, poverty relief organizations, all of your people that are doing the on the ground work to solve, you know, systemic societal issues. And we give them less than 1% when we're giving the stadium, you know, almost uh, 1.25% or something along those lines. Right. Uh, So that 4.8 in 2014, 2015 went down to 3.3 million in 2015, 2016 the mayor suggested to cutting it less than half a million in 2016, 2017. But after negotiations that was revised to 3.2 million, but for the fiscal year, 2017, 2018, he's again suggested cutting it to about half a million, which mind you, uh, I'm on the board that does this for the city that I live in and our, we have about less than a third of the budget you guys do. Yeah. And yet we're giving 430000 So you guys would be in the same ballpark as us with the three times as big budget. Um, right. And I just, all of this to say how misplaced all of these priorities are for a stadium that should have, that could have and should have been privately done by the college and university. And could have so easily been done. Yes. So easily. Like, no hoops, no finagling could have built an on-campus arena that was part of the community um, geographically and um, 
so not corporate and overrun with all of this mess and um, was just not even considered, I don't think, that I know of when it was built. Um, and it's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's called the Yum Center. Yeah, it's one of the most like evil food empires the world has ever known. Um, arguably adding like one of the most gargantuan and lamentable carbon footprints of any corporation on the planet. <laughs> uh, and it is only seen as like, uh, at least in the public conscience in Louisville of seeing, being like something we should be proud of. Um, that's not even to mention all the lobbying that UofL has done against a WNBA team or an NBA team coming to Louisville. Really? Um, oh, yeah, they have a monopoly on the Yum Center, and they don't want anyone else in there. Um, it's, and then a, a basketball program that is mired in this just absurd story, and then a university that is on probation from their accreditation board and after the governor completely up, up, upended the board, and apparently the board was just beyond corrupt. Oh. Yep, all of that is a wonderful lens. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> what, uh, what are your opinions on the uh, mayor of Louisville? Uh, I had never looked at the budget that closely on what he was spending for outside social services. Um, it's a little disheartening to think about. I want to think that uh, I, I don't know. I want to think that he has other programs that he has maybe in-house that he wants to be loyal to, but I don't know anything about it. I just want to think that. Um, uh, he presents a good message a lot of the time that I'm willing to listen to. Um, but, you know, I, and he, he came down hard on Bevan's prayer walks thing about what to do about racial division and poverty um, in the black community in Louisville, hmm. um, which was nice. Um, and he has supported a lot of things that I support over the years since I've lived there. Um, so, yeah, it's all well taken, though. I'm sure the, the story is much more complex than what I've paid attention to. <laughs> oh, my. In a state that is uh, hard on Democrats, I have a, a Democrat congressman and Democrat mayor, and so I'm willing to just take that for now. <laughs> yeah, at least that's enough. You know, uh, I... Maybe I'm getting old and cynical, um, but stability is a, you know, and we've talked about this. Stability is not something to be mocked at in some ways. Uh, right. As we see, like either side seems to want to throw us into instability right now. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's a great place that's going to wind up where we think it's going to wind up when the, when the chips are on the table. Well, and I'm, and I'm not, I don't have my thumb on, the, the social issues like uh, someone that studies this stuff would. But with all the cities within the last five years that experience a major social strife as it relates to <coughs> racial stuff, 
I look at my city and wonder how it didn't happen in the last five years. And so I also look at my city and say, it's like any day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, not many cities in the country have the racial division like Louisville does. And so I just feel like it's, we're right on the precipice of it. And I don't hear a lot of conversation that goes that far into it. But then, you know, I mean, my sister is on the front lines of it. Um, and she's saying the same thing that we're, we're really close to um, some real uh, upheaval happening. Well, it is like, you know, having lived in Charlotte for a little while, when you, when it, when it, things kind of blew up down there, it was like how, the reaction from, from me was, how has this not happened before? Not why is this happening? Right. Yeah. And it has happened before. I mean, 1968, Louisville, was, I mean, that was the downtown was a ghost town for 40 years after 1968. It's just been in the last 10 years that it's really come back. You know, I mean, ever since you moved down there, everybody wants to be there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. What else you got, man? Um, the Kaepernick stuff is always on the front pages, it seems like. Um, I'm, I'm glad it gets coverage. It's often in a way that's not uh, always great, though. Um, Michael Vick's comments about Colin needs to cut his hair. Uh, I was happy to see backtracked at least though. Yeah. You know, um, and I do, I can see a way in which he was taken out of context. Uh, and his quotation, it was, a, it was a, a, a clickbait type of comment until I think it was the story, um, extended to where Vic didn't want it to go. Uh, I did find it to be a little tone deaf on his part, but I, I, I buy his um, uh, recanting from that to some extent. But if Johnny Manziel gets signed by a team and Colin Kaepernick doesn't, then I don't think we have any conclusion to accept other than that the league is what we think it is. Yep. When it is, um, first off, I just want to say real quick, in my neck of the woods, there's a bunch of people upset because it looks like Vic's going to get elected into the Virginia Tech Hall of Sports Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and they're all upset about that for you know the reasons that they have. Uh, and I, I'm not going to sit here and defend him for what he did, but I do just want people to recognize that when they're making these severe judgments about dogfighting, and particularly in Vic's case that we need to recognize that there's a strong racial and classist overtone to that uh, and mm-hmm. just be aware of that every time we're in that conversation. Yes. Um, but um, what were we talking about? Oh, uh, the league being what it is, um, I am consistently amazed. So, right, the NBA just finished summer league, uh, and we have seen, uh, like always, that there are guys, Donovan Mitchell from U L being – the chief example of guys that go in the like 15 range that clearly are better than a lot of the guys that go before them mm-hmm. um, and how these scouting institutions don't figure it out is beyond me. Right. Like how they can consistently miss so often and how certain franchises clearly know what they're doing so much better how the Warriors and the Spurs consistently do better than everyone else. 
uh, and the other teams don't catch up on it is just amazing to me. And it speaks to these same things here that there are, I think a lot of times there are things at play in these organizations that are make it about things other than winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really, it's a really hard thing to understand how these major institutions, you know, before we came on air, you were talking about bad leadership, but how these major organizations with people that are all shown tremendous leadership capacity in some form or fashion at some point in their lives can be such a train wreck is amazing. Right. Yeah, I, I often land on old boyism, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm willing to hear someone argue against me and prove me wrong and say, like, you know, that's kind of a, a catch-all, almost a platitude <laughs> towards, you know, my, my liberal lens, um, and I'm almost, like, kind of placating myself with that, but I, I find just so much evidence of it. Um, and I usually find concrete evidence in their statements when they come out and make a public statement or when I, we get the opportunity to see like an internal memo or something from within the organization. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I was right. Like, <laughs> they're the only leadership they have shown or the only reason their leadership works is because they're in an old boy system. <laughs> um, and so they get to keep doing what they're doing because they got their hands on the levers. Um, mm-hmm. And um, their their levers are of the historical bent, and so they're not earned, so to speak. Um, so in that way, it doesn't surprise me that some organizations consistently suck, um, but still turn a profit or still have so much power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's where I usually go with it. I can see but, that. Yeah. But you got anything else, man? I'm good to move on. Alright, well tell me what's going on in the cricket world then, man. So the Women's World Cup final is tomorrow and it's uh, set up perfectly. It's been a wonderful tournament, uh, but England and India are going to play together Mm. in in England at Lourdes. And so it's got the historical significance of England versus India. You know, that's, that's the, the story of cricket. Um, it's the story of colonialism. It's the story of the 20th century. Um, so in that way, it's got some heft historically. And then it's also got um, some feel-good parts to it, some things that we can laud and praise about progress. Um, so the very first Women's World Cup uh, was not televised, uh, not one of the matches sold out, and I think there were mm. around 3,000 people at the final. Uh, tomorrow's final, is, uh, the last five matches uh, of the tournament all sold out. There will be 27,000 people in attendance tomorrow, and an estimated 50 million people will watch. Wow. Uh, so that's an 80% increase uh, from the last World Cup. Uh, and it's the first time it's sold out. Uh, which is pretty awesome. And then there's some uh, smaller stories within it that are great. Uh, Matali Raj is the captain of India, and her story is the story of the rise of women's cricket. So she played in that first World Cup that wasn't televised, and she's been the captain since 2004. Uh, and her story is an interesting one. Is um, 
She's not just a great cricketer. She's the first cricketer, women's cricketer, to score 6,000 runs uh, in ODI cricket, <laughs> which is really impressive. But uh, she has also, as in, uh, India's captain, always pushed her team to play exciting cricket. And so when she's coaching up her team or when she's making uh, captain's picks for the lineup, uh, a, a big part of her dis- decision-making is who's going to mm-hmm. be exciting to watch, yeah. uh, which is an interesting take on it. And she does it unapologetically. Yeah. She's like, if, if we're going to grow this sport, the brand that we want to put on the field uh, needs to be a brand that people want to watch. Uh, and so she's notorious for putting – um, the first two bats women she puts out there uh, are told to be as exciting as possible, um, which is, is cool. I, I'm, I'm behind it. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, it's the, it's the Dwight Gale approach to cricket, and it's a exactly. fun approach. Yeah. Uh, she also, too, um, she's gotten so much press in the last week. Um, I mean, she just hundreds of interviews. And she handles them so well. And Mm -hmm. so many of the interviews are disparaging. And I even want to say like slightly racist and definitely Mm -hmm. sexist. Um, Almost every interview she does, she gets the question, who's your favorite cricketer? Which is to say, who's your favorite male cricketer? Like who's your, because to answer a woman means 95% of the people aren't going to know who she answers. And so she's like beckoned to name a male cricketer so that like the male cricket fans can say like, Oh yeah, women watch men's cricket. Like it's just a, a shitty question. Um, yeah. And she handles it really well every time as in the last few times I heard her answer it. She said, you mean who is my favorite male cricketer? And it comes off really well every time. I'm like, yeah, get him Matali. <laughs> But tomorrow, 4.30 a.m., if you want to watch it. Oof. I woke <laughs> up at 4 a.m. to watch a bike race this week. I don't know that I can do that twice in the same week. <laughs> well, what's going on with the tour? So uh, today is le- next to last stage. Um, it's been an interesting one. Uh, Chris Froome is going to win, provided he doesn't hurt himself and not finish tomorrow. Um it's been by far the closest one he's had. He hasn't been nearly as dominant as he's been in the past, uh, which gives me hope that next year maybe somebody can beat him. Uh, but uh, it hasn't been the most exciting. It's been a very it, – it's this interesting thing where it's been a very tense and very story-filled Tour de France. Like it's been kind of fairly enjoyable to watch, but it hasn't been uh, exciting. There's been nothing that's set it alight. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's it's interesting how that's how that's turned out. Um, one of the things that's made it so enjoyable to watch is that the French have done really well, um, yeah. and that makes it it's just a funner tour to watch when the French people are excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, what really interests me is that for the past I think three years, the Tour de France is which is organized and run by a group called ASO, which I can't pronounce their name because it's a French thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've done a, a, a women's event, which was a big deal when they started it. Uh, it was kind of a mirror of the last day for the men where they they do a sprint on Champs-Élysées. So very big deal. Um, huge crowds and stuff. Uh, and it was a big deal for the women's sport. 
this year they did it a little bit differently in a way that I really liked. So the women's races almost never go up the high mountains um, and have a mountaintop finish. So for this one, this time what they did was they did a two leg thing. Uh, they did a mountaintop finish on the Col d'Isard the same day that the men were going up there. So right, they did it right before the men's race. Um, turned out to be an exciting race. Uh, one of the riders for the uh, women's Orca team won, so that makes me even happier. Yeah. Um, uh, but then they paired that with on this morning they did a time trial, where unlike a normal time trial where it's just you against the clock, uh, it's essentially a handicap race where you start with the same advantage that you took off the mountain. Um, so the woman that, that won on the mountain won by 44 seconds. Uh, but then instead of just chasing her out of the block, there's now this incentive for her, the woman that was in second to wait for the person that was in third, like 15 seconds behind to catch up so they can then work together to try and go after the woman in front. Right. Um, done this really once before. And it didn't, it wasn't the same thing. Like uh, it was a team time trial where they were on the course at the same time, but they couldn't, you still couldn't draft off the other teams. But it's, it, I found it to be a really fascinating race. And yet at the same time, there were some women who uh, viewed it as too gimmicky and didn't like, why can't we just race like the men do? There's mm -hmm. these really interesting questions for me. Like, I think this is exciting. And I think it could be the future of the sport and could really grow the sport. But it is true that it's different from the men, and um, should should you be using gimmicky things to get attention for the women in the sport? Right. All all that to say, I, I was really excited by it, uh, but it's in, it raises some interesting propositions. Even though I think in the end, personally, I think it was really good for women's cycling. What are they saying about it? Have you heard anything? So nothing since the race other than um, they've been excited that they got to do a mountaintop finish. Like that was a big deal. Um, yeah. It's been exciting because they've been able to do it both of the times. So the, the time trial that they did today was on the same track that the men's time trial was on later in the day. So both times they had much bigger crowds than you'll ever find at a women's race normally. So I think mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Um, like they've never had these races where they have 5,000 spectators watching when they finish the race. Right. Um, so I think that they appreciate that. Um, but there hasn't, I don't think we've finally really sorted out what the, what the top writers think about the format. Right. Of course, it's always hard to know that there, because it's a mountaintop finish, there's certain riders that are never going to win. Right. Uh, and so then like, is, do they really dislike her? Do they dislike the fact that they can't win or, or what's going on with it? Interesting. Um, ideally, what I would love to see is just them work it out with the men where they would do like a, you know, not, not even a full thing, but take like one week of the tour where they would ride the same stages at the men road before the men, like an hour and a half before the men do every day. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really huge and uh, important for the support but I don't know that it'll happen anytime soon. Right. It's such a frustratingly predominant question that women's sports have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it definitely shouldn't be us as in you and I or other white men telling them how to go about it, but um, 
it's, it sucks that it's, it's a, such a predominant question that they have to answer, but it, they have to answer it. But isn't, I think my takeaway was really that I want to watch the men do the format that I just saw the women do. Right. Um, and that being my reaction makes me think that it was, it was a good thing to do, but then right. I don't know. Because it, um, I don't want the women to be where they test out all the innovations in the way, because I mean, that diminishes the support in some way. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it tiptoes closely to the sideshow thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it seems like a nice contrast to, to a tour that has dealt with the, a lot of fans saying these, these um, stages are really boring. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's been a good three weeks, but I'm glad it's over and I can get work done from 10:30 to 11:30 now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Well, shall we move on to the main topic? Let's do it. So today, I think we kind of couched this, or I've couched it in my head, is how do we, how is how we consume sports changing, uh, and where is it headed? Um, mm-hmm. So any, any any initial thoughts, Kyle? Yeah, I think we have touched on this topic here and there at different points in time without it being a main topic. And I think what makes it a main topic is the moves that have been made by ESPN and Fox in the last several months with ESPN laying off over a hundred journalists and Fox laying off 20 journalists um, just in the last month and both doing so uh, because of decrease in viewership, but also an increase in interest or an increase in business for both of those organizations as it relates to video content. So the simple story is that folks aren't reading articles as much as they're watching short little videos. The other interpretation of it is that it's not so much that as it is a video can garner more attention for a network. So the idea that and what Fox's internal memo said is with premium video content, we increase our chances of viralism. Uh, The idea that what really sells or really creates revenue for these networks is when a video goes viral. Uh, And so one example I came across that I found especially interesting was during the MLB playoffs, Alex Rodriguez and Pete Rose were supposed to do a little like one minute jaunt on hitting Mm-hmm. And uh, it aired as a one-minute thing on live television, but Alex Rodriguez kept peppering Pete Rose with questions, and it ended up lasting like five minutes. And they uploaded it to Facebook uh, and Twitter, and within like a couple hours, it got like 15 million views. Um, and so the extended coverage of um, an impromptu uh, video segment was so much more valuable to Fox uh, than it was when it aired live. Uh, and so it seems to be kind of guiding their business decisions. And so there's all this, sorts of side things that become significant, I think, when you unpack this a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. And it follows the move of everything else. You know, someone 
who through my job is forced to post a bunch of work stuff on Facebook and Twitter and all these places. All, all of them are competing for your video mm -hmm. coverage. If you put videos on there, they're going to guarantee clips because videos is how they know that they can, that's where they have all identified their growth areas to be. Right. And so it's interesting to see ESPN and Sports Illustrated coming to the same conclusions. And I, Sports Illustrated has got that damn autoplay that I hate. Why anyone yeah. thinks at this point in time I want an autoplay um, yeah. is ridiculous. And ESPN, you have to be really vigilant. Uh, to not catch a video. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, you have to spend a little bit of energy to not be bombarded with a video. And even now, too, with the scroll, that you start scrolling down and then the video pops down to the right part of your screen and keeps playing. Um, it's, in, it's interesting for me, too, because the videos for ESPN are almost all really low quality, in my opinion. Not, not low quality in terms of production quality, but in terms of content. I never mm -hmm. care what they have to say. It's right. always the the opinion guys talking about their opinion, which is I go there to get the news. In the news, you still have to kind of weed through and read things to find. Right. Like there's a story, you know, the video that was attached to the Kyrie story last night when I was reading it was a story not about what was actually happening, but was about what does this say about Kyrie? Right. Um, which is, it's just an interesting thing that I, I don't question ESPN on this. I assume that they have all kinds of metrics that say this is what people will watch. Right. But for me personally, I find it frustrating. Yeah, I, I've, I'm exactly with you. And I think it's interesting to ask the question, like, are there not many of us anymore that are reading content and that would prefer to read content? Uh, and I think the answer from ESPN is Fox is we don't care because we can make more money off these videos. Uh, and so even if there are people that still want to read, they just don't care about us anymore because inundating a site with video content sells well for them. Um, well, we probably should have seen the precursor of this too with the death of Grantland. Right. I mean, there's no better example of ex excellent written content that got killed. Right. Yeah, and that's what's frustrating about Grantland is I wish Grantland could have just uh, kept going outside of ESPN and run its own thing, mm -hmm. um, which I, I have to think it could have been done, but ESPN had the power in that negotiation at every level, so mm -hmm. there was really no hope for it. Uh, well, it's interesting. One of the questions that's been rising for me, so that – all of the statistics suggest that subscribers to Fox and ESPN are way down mm -hmm. like to the point where I think that ESPN dragged down the whole Disney corporation last year. Mm -hmm. So it raises these questions for me of maybe what we're seeing is the fact that people like you and I that want to dig into sports are becoming more of a rarity than ever. And then what we're yeah. seeing is a lot of people that want to go there, see the headlines and that's all they want to see. Right, um, and it's it just it's an interesting thing. Like to me, it's it suggests there's a change in the essence of fandom going on right now. Yeah, and so this is my central question, I think, and I kind of touched on it, but to try and make it as clear as possible for myself, even is I'm I'm wondering if ESPN and Fox moving to video is 
really saying that or if it's simply that they have found an avenue to make more money. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if it really is true that folks don't want to read anymore or if it's just that ESPN can make more money doing something else. Uh, and so like if it's an industry thing or if it's a fandom thing or maybe it's a little bit of both, it would, would be hard to find an answer to that question, I think. But um, yeah. It, well, I think the uh, esteemed uh, Dr. Bruce Hull, who we've both had experience with, uh, would say that uh, we will want whatever they tell us we want. Right. Um, and so that even if we don't want a bunch of this video content right now, and they, what they've essentially done in the past six months is create that demand, and now that's what people want. Right. Yeah, which is maybe worth lamenting. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. Yeah, and I think it's the other part of it that is a conclusion that I don't think we're there yet, but what it points toward is what Fox and ESPN are saying is what sells right now are the Skip Bayless, the Sports Center at Six, the SVP, the First Take, these things of people screaming about what other people have written. Mm-hmm. which is the interesting part of it because Fox couldn't do this if ESPN wasn't churning out journalism. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, if you keep doing this and if you keep going this route, then there aren't going to be any journalists left to yell about. <laughs> uh, and so it makes me think that uh, it, maybe that gives me a little bit of hope that you don't exist without the journalist. So you can go this route if you want, but understand that, journalism at some point is going to happen. Um, And so maybe journalism is going to be less and maybe that's a sign of the times, but nonetheless, like there still has to be journalism. But then to segue into the next part of the conversation for me is my new um, education in uh, artificial intelligence covering sports uh, and covering news in general. And so reading about, um, this company automated insights mm-hmm. and they're the company that um, their auto bots cover all of minor league baseball. So all the data is just dumped into these computers and these programs and these algorithms. And what is churned out is actual text about each game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so <clears throat> the only human part is dumping in the data, uh, which takes like one person and all the data is dumped in, and then there can be upwards of like 500,000 versions of a game, and then the computer based on, again, data entered, so like geography, previous interest, uh, all this demographic data, things like that, it'll pick the best version of the article to publish. Mm -hmm. It'll be automatically uploaded to a website or a newspaper's uh, website. And that's the story that'll be written about the game that just happened. (laughs) Uh, And so if you follow that, I mean, that leads into a really bizarre world that we don't know anything about. And Wired just published last month an article on this, uh, not just about sports journalism that's coming from these Autobots, but um, how news companies are doing the same thing. And so the Washington Post apparently is on the front lines of this. Um, And all of their journalists so far are 
watching it with a lot of vigilance, but they also seem to be saying like, this helps a lot that what can come from data being dumped into these machines is they can locate the human interest part quicker. Uh, hmm. And so that they then can do their journalism on, on the, the far side of this. Um, but the, the scary part is that eventually these machines could be trained to write better stories than what the journalists could write. Um, and so the question that Wired posed to a lot of journalists that were quoted in this article is, will uh, a machine win a Pulitzer Prize at some point? Uh, and they end with, um, I have the quotation here. Um, it says, imagine an article telling someone how local council cuts will affect their family specifically, or how they personally are affected by a war happening in a different country. I think the results might show up in the next couple of years, Caswell said. It's something that cannot be done by a human writer. So yeah, I think we'll see a machine win a Pulitzer. So my concern is not, I think, with the actual journalism being done by the um, the AI. So I, you know, there will come a day when this probably happens, but hopefully I'm dead and gone by then. <laughs> um, or this will uh, kill us this, this will yeah. be the final straw but you know I think we're a long way off you know the fact that I can go on to YouTube and after watching a bunch of sports videos can be like hey didn't that jerk say something racist at some point and then go look up something that you know Johnny Manziel said um, and that was reported on by Fox News. And then all I see for the next two weeks are Fox News pieces popping up in my feed. Uh, yeah. And all of that tells me that the AI, this is Google, mind you, on YouTube, since they own that, and that they're, if their AI can't figure that out, then it tells me there are serious flaws in what they have to do. So right. I don't necessarily worry about them taking the jobs. What more concerns me uh, is their ability to discern truth. Yes. And so you wind up with these computers reporting things because they've heard them and not having the capacity to figure out whether they're actually happening or not. Right. Yeah, the, the wonderful example that an article I read used was when <clears throat> those two women started a game for an independent league team in Sonoma Valley last year. Mm -hmm. And an Autobot covered the game and it had the Autobot version of the game alongside what another journalist had written about the game. Hmm. And there wasn't one mention from the Autobot story about how significant it was that two women were starting an independent league baseball game. Yeah. Uh, and just how wonderful the story was that the journalist had written uh, and how much more powerful and truth was displayed in the story. Hmm. But it looks like it's it's coming. I mean, the article went on to talk about how Vista, an equity company, bought Automated Insights for eighty million dollars in cash uh, last year. So it's, Damn man, he just started company. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that what makes money is things we don't value, though. Surely there's something we value that can make money. <laughs> we can develop an automated software that will tell companies 
what the backlash from people oh, that are yeah. social justice oriented will feel right. about something. Right. But I'm pretty sure Bezos has beaten us through that. Um, I mean, apparently not because Pepsi's still producing these ridiculous ads. <laughs> right. uh, Pepsi ought to be paying us $5 million to figure out what's not, uh, what's not acceptable for their advertising. Right. Well, yeah. And apparently he's on the front lines of this, that the next step is going to be led by him. It's really interesting to see all this happening. Cause I, you know, he, he they just bought uh, whole foods. Right. Uh, that for me reads as an attempt that they're going to try and run whole foods without cashier staff within the next three years or so. I see yep. that as the next progression. That's why he did that. I think, um, which is just an interesting thing, I, you know. Yep. At this point, I it scares me, but I have to. You can't be too upset about it, or you're just going to wind yourself in a knot all the time. Well, I've read plenty from small farmers that are all for it. Mm-hmm. That say like this only increases their chances of survivability. Uh, um, but yeah, there's the mm-hmm. larger there's the larger arc that seems a little troubling. Well, so it's interesting because I took a little bit of a different angle on this stuff um, and kind of dealt into how people are consuming sports and how big of a deal um, it was when ESPN went on sling. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, the incredible loss in revenue that places like ESPN. First off, the fact that Fox Sports came on when they did uh, is really odd to me. So that it must have been the work of many years that culminated because I think right when they came on, they should have already seen the downward trends in the market. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it was really odd to launch this huge endeavor right when this stuff is past its peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really intrigued because we've seen, you know, baseball comes to mind in particular. We've just seen uh, basketball kind of go through this weird situation where the salary cap was, didn't go up as much as people thought it was going to go up mm-hmm. and it threw chaos into the league. Um, mm-hmm. And baseball's got this massive TV deal right now. And maybe they get one more, but I don't think they get two more of those deals. Mm-hmm. And what happens when those, that money is not there anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today, um, it- it becomes the ultimate question of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Like where, where does sustainability exist and at what point do you land on it? And can you only know where that was after the fact? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really interesting to see how sports have positioned themselves. Like eSports, we've seen it now come up on things like TBS and their – you know, they've been on these major cable stations, but they're still their bread and butter are yeah. places where people can watch for free. Right. Um, Ultimate is in the same place. We're seeing, uh, and it's really interesting to me that when I was thinking about this, the X Games came up. And yeah. how I, I personally think that the X Games would be so much more successful if they broadcast uh, at least a simulcast, if not exclusively on YouTube. I think that would be a huge benefit for them to do that. Um, well, that's what but, the, the IPL, they, I mean, the new Premier League broadcasting mm-hmm. free on YouTube was the name of the game from day one. 
It's it's changing everything. And I because I think, you know, we've seen the subscriptions to ESPN are going way down and that makes up 60% of their revenues. And so they're just not going to be able to do this forever. And right. so these leagues are going to have to figure out other ways. Uh, and yeah. this is where it becomes so interesting for me with the, um, like, are we seeing a change in fandom? Because we've seen all of these leagues and even teams, you know, Texas has got their own channel for mm-hmm. everything, which Lord knows how they fill it with content. Right. Um, but are we seeing a move away from that kind of obsessive fandom? And if so, what does that mean for those leagues? Like, right. you know, I, th- I think I did some, try to do some searches to figure out what average rating for a baseball game was mm-hmm. uh, TV wise. Could not find it. Uh, now mind <laughs> you, I look for 50 minutes, but the fact that in those 15 minutes, nothing came up. Right. Uh, it's troubling to me in the fact that all of the articles I see talked about how last year's world series was the highest rated uh, thing other than the super bowl in years and years and years. Right. But um, that's not sustainable. If only people are watching the world series, people are always going to watch the world series. Right. People are always going to watch the super bowl. But right. what happens when they're not watching the rest of your games? Right. Yeah, and see, that's what I think. So Jamie Horowitz, the guy that's doing running this show at Fox now, is an ESPN mm-hmm. guy and an NBC guy and now turned Fox guy. And I think what he would say, and this is where I'm like, I agree with him in his business sense. I don't love that this is happening um, the way it's happening right now, but where I agree with him and where I can get positive about it is so if you take the LA Dodgers who signed the biggest TV contract, um, if you took Jamie Hurwitz model and applied it to the Dodgers, so the Dodgers just have a massive cable deal at this moment. That's what they just signed. Mm-hmm. And what if they signed with a company, a media company that found outlets for getting the game to its fans on their platform of choice i think Mm -hmm. is what hurowitz is saying like that's what fox is going to do is like he's going to take that segment with pete rose and alex rodriguez and ramp that up and say i'm going to get the content you want to you on your platform that there's no such thing as like a hub anymore Um, and so that's where i could see like I, i agree with you like the next couple rounds of these big huge tv contracts being more about less of a hub and more of a who's going to be like the courier and like mail the stuff to the, to the consumer. Which is, um, I think necessarily going to be different in terms of like when it's going to be through Facebook and YouTube, which are not places where people are going to sit for three hours and watch a game. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's going to be, you know, home run compilations. The N- NBA is pushing out all kinds of highlight packages on YouTube. Oh right yeah. Now. Oh my gosh, their Instagram has actually gotten kind of annoying. Um, but I think that they know that that's where they're going to get tons of views on that. Um, right. And they know that it's going to stay up there forever. So it's going to be tons of views that just keeps growing. Right. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating thing. And um, I am intrigued to see where it goes. And I, you know, it's not that I don't think that people at ESPN and Fox are incredibly smart. Uh, but they're in a weird situation right now, something that no one's ever had to deal with. And the way things are moving, whatever solution they have now is not going to be a solution in five years. Right. 
I mean, even like, let's say you want to get stuff on Facebook, Facebook's algorithm it changes, you know, multiple times a month. And so I am constantly trying to figure out what the heck to put out there to get people to click on things. Right. Um, Facebook knows that it can get the NBA over uh, a barrel. It's going to do yeah. that. Yep. So what's how soon before Facebook or Twitter signs a major league before they sign a team or a league as a, as a main uh, producer of content? Yeah, I think that's the next step. It'll be interesting how that breaks down because I, I could see them signing contracts with a, a carrier before they sign with the actual team. Yeah. But I think maybe the next the second or third generation of this could be direct signing with teams. I mean, I, I, it, I think if YouTube were smart, they would go to the IPL and say, let's reach some kind of agreement to make this even more of a thing mm -hmm. between us. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to put a bunch of YouTube ads with your content all over it. Um, yeah. And we'll both benefit from it. I am intrigued, and I just want to share that apparently the NFL has sold rights to broadcast games in Canada to a mm. group that is not even broadcasting in Canada at the moment. Hmm. Uh, that they are they broadcast in like Germany and some other European countries, but they're going to have to build out a whole Canada thing in order wow. to broadcast games. Jeez, <laughs> right? Oh, NFL wow. yet again uh, winning. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm good then. Okay. Well, uh, do you want to hit me with your I think first, or mine's kind of positive? Do you want to end on a positive, or do you want to, or do you want to end on a negative? I assume yours is a negative. No, mine's actually positive. Too, oh, so. what what is going on right now, Kyle? All right, I'll go first. Okay. For one that has never watched or played cricket, the game can seem rather bizarre. But I think that I think that cricket at its core, like other universally loved sports, is actually one of the most simple sports and therefore one of the most appealing. One might even call it communal. A teacher colleague of mine started a cricket club this summer. Our first attempt at teaching the game was difficult when 80 students showed up. <laughs> the second attempt was washed out by global warming, but our third attempt was memorable and inspiring. About 20 students showed up. They ordered themselves in an oval surrounding the pitch. Everyone took a turn bowling, took a turn batting, and took a turn keeping. There was parody like I rarely get to see in sports. Everyone was trying something new. They were trying hard, but not too concerned with the outcome. The simplicity of the game was on full display, as was the fun that comes when a catch is made where the wickets were taken or when someone was run out while trying to squeeze out an extra run. Last week, I mentioned that I'd be on the lookout for more amateur public sporting events. I'd like to invite all that are with me in this pursuit to our last cricket club outing this Wednesday <laughs> at 4.30 on the intramural fields. It's guaranteed to be a good time. <laughs> Are you going to have 80 people again, Kyle? Uh, I doubt it. I'm hoping for 10. 
Well, uh, um, all I'll say is that ultimate would be better, but I guess if you have to do cricket, you have to do cricket. So, <laughs> well, the students play ultimate every night, uh, so you can watch them play every night too, if you want. But there's nothing better than that, like first week on campus for the freshmen that are like, "Oh, this yeah. is college. I'm going to go play ultimate," and then they go out yeah. and play. Like that's the it's a quintessential college experience and an amazing amateur sports experience. Yeah, it's a phenomenon. And I, I applaud you for trying to make cricket like that. So Yeah. What do you got? Uh, I'll just say that you have a, a leg up as going being a teacher at a private school that you could probably actually start a women's cricket team if you wanted to. I probably could, actually. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Um, well, all right. The global reach of sports is amazing. The fact that Bayern Munich versus Arsenal can fill a stadium in China is so cool. However, on some level, we know exactly why that game is occurring, and it isn't because it better prepares the players. Arsene Wenger finally caved on these preseason tours recently, but he is clearly right that going to Indonesia or China or the U.S. for a preseason tour is terrible for preparation for a season. It is a pure money grab. All these teams need to expand their brands abroad. This is how they do it. Same with the NBA in China and the NFL in Europe. However, unlike most other money grabbing situations, I think that I think I support this kind of sports diplomacy. There are millions of folks in China that love the NBA and soccer. It's a special thing to watch Durant use his over 10 foot high release point to dominate opponents with his jumper. And I'm glad more people are getting to see it in person. In the same way, I'm glad more folks get to see the wizardry of Thomas Muller and Frank Ribery. These are special experiences that I support. In some ways, I view it as a very egalitarian spreading of the wealth. It shouldn't just be wealthy Europeans and Americans who get to see greatness. So in the end, I'm willing to overlook the money grubbing and potentially ill effects of these tours and gimmicks. I support them. I'm with you. I, I think the the outcome outweighs the money grabbing at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm very cool with it. I love seeing it. But it, you know, have I went to see um, when I was in high school? I went to see DC United play Celtic in DC. Mm -hmm. and it was just a really cool experience, you know, to yeah. be there and see this. You know, not the top, but you know, I know these players and get to see them yeah. in person. Is a it's a it's a well worthwhile experience for people all over the world to get a chance to see that. Yeah, I did the exact same thing. Some friends and I drove to New York City to watch Juventus and Man U play. It was awesome. I can't imagine watching Juventus play. Of all the teams that, like, if if Arsenal played Juventus, I might wait for them to come back on another preseason tour to play somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, good deal, man. You got anything else? I'm good. Well, folks, you've uh, spent another while listening to us uh, with our own money-grabbing tactics here. We definitely get paid a bunch of money to do this. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, come back and listen next week so we can get even more uh, pennies on the dollar for this. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.